This episode of this podcast is making me thirsty is brought to you by WFBB, home of big band hits. Call 555-BAND during our Thanksgiving Day Parade contest for a chance to be in the parade holding up the Odie Woodpecker floats. Welcome to this podcast is making me thirsty, the number one destination for Seinfeld fans. This is episode 87. Today's guest is an acclaimed pop culture writer. She's a New York Times bestselling author. She wrote the book Seinfeldia, how a show about nothing changed everything. Jennifer Cation Armstrong. Thank you for listening. If you dig it, please pass it on. Follow us on Twitter at This Thirsty. Follow us on Instagram at This Thirsty. Email us. This podcast is making me thirsty at gmail.com. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Thank you for listening. Enjoy. This podcast is making me thirsty. Episode 87. Jennifer Cation Armstrong. Welcome to this podcast is making me thirsty. The number one destination for Seinfeld fans. This episode 87. Today's guest is an acclaimed pop culture writer whose works have appeared in several publications, including Entertainment Weekly, New York Magazine and Billboard. She's a New York Times bestselling author who has written seven pop culture books, including When Women Invented Television, Mary and Lou Rhoda and Ted, Sex and the City and Us. And of course, the acclaimed in-depth look at Seinfeld, Seinfeldia, how a show about nothing changed everything. Please welcome Jennifer Cation Armstrong. Jennifer, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. All right. Hey, Jennifer. So take us back a little bit. I know you're a TV historian, but, Mm -hmm. you know, Seinfeld kind of, I think, ran through your high school, college, and then post-college years live. So before we get into the book, when did you become a fan? Was it was it live or was it kind of post uh, rerun eras? It was definitely live. I mean, I it's I have this thing that's probably annoying that whenever people ask me in interviews, like, "Were you a fa- are you a fan of Seinfeld?" I always feel funny saying I am. Of course, I am. But I feel like if you grew up in that era, it almost felt, or maybe if you grew up in that era and you were a TV person, at least, it felt like you didn't make a decision. (laughs) You just like, we're going to watch Seinfeld. I mean, it was such required viewing. And I grew up in a TV household where we didn't even question, like we didn't sit down one day and say, should we check out this Seinfeld? Like it just at some point became what you did and you had to watch it because you were going to go to school the next day and everybody was going to be saying some crazy thing. Like, you know, these pretzels are making me thirsty or, you know, um, not that there's anything wrong with that. And they're all going to be running around saying this thing that you won't understand if you don't watch the show. And so, yeah, I was, I mean, obviously not right from the beginning because very few people were watching right from the beginning, but as soon as it kind of infiltrated the TV universe enough that people were talking about it, I was watching it. Yeah, exactly. I actually get the chills a little bit when you were talking about that, because that's exactly why we started this podcast. I mean, me and O'Hara used to obviously sit in class and talk about the night before his episode and uh yeah and watching it live was was something else um you know and as chris just said you know your tv historian obviously you researched this book um everyone we've talked to so far who's been on the show 
has talked about how different the show was as far as the way it was run from Larry to Jerry and the execs, even like everything. Um, and, you know, it also, like you just mentioned, was different than any show on TV at the time when you watched it live. You're like, we haven't seen anything like this yet. Like, what is this? Right. So I guess my question sort of is like, what what is from, you know, from the research you've gathered and, and just from working on writing books about other shows, um, you know, what made Seinfeld like so special, I guess? Like, what was their unique, like, what, what was it like to be a trailblazer and innovator? You sort of have to be an outsider. And they were sort of outsiders and they kind of just changed everything, you know. So maybe you can kind of touch on that. Yeah, it's sort of mind blowing because it's like almost everything like it should have not never worked at so many different junctures. And it's only because it both was doing something different, but then did something crazy would happen to keep it going that made it so different. That's what I think, because it didn't come up through the normal network system, I think is what I'm saying, that mm. it didn't get those classic like tons of notes and like it was tested and all of that, but it sort of kept defying it. And I think that's why it ended up being able to be so different because the network was not paying a ton of attention to it in those first, I always, I'm not even sure how to count them at times, like that first season, which is one episode. And then the next season, which is like four episodes, they were, it was buried in the summer. Nobody really cared whether it was going to do well or not. No one thought much about it. So it kind of was able to find its footing while it was doing that. And also just like figure out some other ways of doing things. So, you know, Larry and Jerry being very much in charge and very much owning that voice, especially Larry. Larry, I think always having one foot out the door for a while actually behooved them greatly, right? Because he, I think I believe that he really didn't care if they kept the show going. And so having a showrunner, especially in that era of like networky sitcom stuff, to have a guy who is very confusing to everyone because he's like, I'll just leave if you won't let me do what I want to do. And so now we see that in the streaming era, people get lots of creative freedom because everyone is buying for the big producers and they want to please them. This was not the era of the showrunner. This was the era of you do what we say, you're lucky to have a show. And Larry, I believe, starts to really change the idea of a showrunner. We had a few others in there before that, people like Norman Lear or somebody like that who was a name brand in itself. But Larry's kind of like, you know, willingness to do what he wanted and to walk if he didn't get it ends up turning him into this kind of mythical figure and also allows him to create this different kind of show that really then all shows after it are kind of a response to that. Right. So what's interesting, and we've, we've talked about this a lot on our show, um, is Seinfeld almost feels like two different shows within one. And um, one of the most interesting people you spoke to was Tom Sharonis. And we feel like when he left, the show just took on kind of a different tone. I'm, I'm curious what you learned from him and if you felt that kind of felt that same way, that kind of seasons one through five were just a little different you know, more minutia and dark versus what we saw in the later years. Yeah, definitely. And there were like a few big changes in there, I feel like, that end up 
turning it slow, not slowly, but at, at a couple junctures into this other thing as it goes. But yeah, I love Sharonis, first of all. And something I loved about him, just, I don't know how much of an impact this ended up having artistically, but like, I always remember how he was one of the people I talked to. Everyone else wanted to show how cool they were, that they like got Seinfeld from the beginning. Oh, I knew it was so great and whatever. He was like, I didn't know what the fuck this thing was. I had been doing, you know, he has been doing like standard sitcom stuff. He would read some of the scripts and be like, I don't know what they're up to here, but sure. And he really liked the freedom that it gave him like camera wise or that's, you know, that he could kind of break out a little bit of that standard sitcom set thing that everyone was doing at the time. And they started to kind of open it up more and, you know, they would, they would sort of film on location even if they could sometimes which was very rare at the time mm. if they couldn't they'd sort of try to make it move more as much as they could instead of just that stagnant like people in a room feeling and that was something he was really excited about so he loved that part and really could run with it and that's also like you know Larry ascendant time and you know that's when Larry David is really finding the voice of the show and becoming Larry David. And I think those two things together and maybe a little bit of all this friction of like the people, everybody involved kind of had a different attitude than normal run of the mill. Oh, we're just so lucky to be here kinds of people who were making sitcoms at the time. And so, yeah, those first several years, especially I do think it takes them a while to like figure out what they're doing once they really get going, you have this kind of like, you know, willingness to experiment with the direction and cameras, willingness to experiment with the material itself, this really kind of manic vibe. We had never seen, I don't want to, I'm always worried about saying never, but I don't feel like we've never seen four major storylines crammed into 22 minutes like they would do. And then the beautiful thing where they would sort of try to bring these disparate storylines together in a little ballet at the end. All of these things were new. And I think there was this energy of everybody getting to do this crazy thing together and being willing to experiment all around. And also they start to, that's when they really start to realize like they can get dark, they can get weird, they can do all that stuff. And so between Sharonis leaving and then Larry David leaving, Right. I think those are the two big jumps, especially in terms of going from that super dark, and, twisty, um, weird time to this Larry Charles. Too, right? <laughs> you would, you add, would, you, would you add Larry Charles into that as well? Because I believe he left right around that time, too. I, mean, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Though. yeah, he's got that sensibility, too, right? I mean, yeah. it was really striking to me, not to jump us forward too much, but it was really oh, striking to me, like, it you know once you know this stuff you can't unsee it and when I learned so much about the show and specifically how by those last two seasons Larry's gone and you've got a staff full of guys who essentially right. had come up watching the show exactly and I, that to me those two things together make it into this like cartoon of itself which I don't hate well, but like it's a different it's it's almost becomes a riff on itself it becomes this bright shiny you know, um, kind of thing. And it, it really struck me when I was doing the research too, that Larry's last episode is the one that kills George's fiance. Um, and to me that like, I hadn't realized that till I was writing the book and like 
thinking about it in order and suddenly what like, oh, well, yeah, of course. Like that he that's like the biggest mic drop, mic drop in sitcom history, right? Is that he's like, killed somebody on your sitcom, I'm gonna go now and I'll come back and write your finale when I'm when you're ready. Like that's a Larry David move that can, you know, is just priceless. Very well said, Jennifer. We we here agree with everything you pretty much you just said. I could probably speak for a hour. I mean, cartoonish is a word we use often to describe seasons eight and nine and absurd. And and it was a writing staff who basically was trying to write Seinfeld like the way they thought Seinfeld should be written. But like, you know, they didn't live it the way, you know, the first five, six seasons did. So that I, we totally agree with that. That take 100 percent. Oh, you got something I can see your. Uh... No, I mean, yeah, completely agree. And it's funny, a, a lot of what you wrote in the book. Um, and you spoke to some like just oh, let me ask you this: Who didn't you? Who didn't you speak to that you wanted? Uh, aside from the, the the main four, was there anyone you wanted to speak to that you didn't get a hold of, or there's something you wanted to learn more about that you weren't able to capture in the book? I don't think so. I mean, the writers are like this. Always happens with all of my books is like the writers are such tre- treasure troves, and they're so fun to talk to, and they often have not really been tapped that much they always they always say to me like oh my god I no one ever talks to us which I know is not really technically true um but I think they they they're not as well rehearsed and like haven't gone over this stuff a billion times and and also these are their stories you know it's like this stuff happened to them and then they they lived it and they brought it to it and they were living and breathing the show and it was also just like we haven't gotten into the details yet, but it was this sort of pressure cooker environment uh, to work in. And so they all had these incredible experiences there. And I always find them to be the, the best to talk to. So talking to people like Melvin, I, you know what, Larry Charles, now that I'm thinking about it, he, he, I think he's one of those guys that just is like, I'm not going to do anything. I don't want to. Yeah. Um, so he, I forgot that he was the one who, um, I never, I never heard back from that would have been fun, but it was, it was very cool to talk to like, you know, Peter Melman and people like that. Um, he's one of my favorites. Agreed. Us, us too. And we feel the same way about the writers. Um, you know, and like you said, maybe you could touch on this. I mean, like you said, everyone, all the writers we've talked to so far have, have told us like kind of like, you know, you're basically mining your whole life for stories and, and just throwing them at Larry and Jerry. And if they like them, they say, go write the script. And then basically la- what's fascinating to me, and I kind of knew this, but talking to these writers is how much Larry David like touched, um, you know, and I did forget to show the book, by the way, I apologize, but I wanted to show it during the uh, intro. I was uh, talking, but um, yeah, I mean the writers and then Larry just basically takes their script and, you know, it puts his genius on it. And all of a sudden I'm like, did you write this line? They're like, actually, Larry wrote that line. You know, wrote that? no, actually Larry wrote that line, but it's like their script. Cause it's their idea. You know, they right. took first crack at it and he, you know, he credits them and he's loyal to them. But um, like you said, the pressure cooker, cause there's a lot of writers that didn't make it. You know, there's a lot of them that I know I read Fred Stoller's book and he had a rough time with, you know, getting, getting pitches in and stuff like that. So maybe you can kind of touch on that. Cause we're really uh, intrigued by the writers as well. Yeah, I loved Fred. And the nice thing about Fred is that he has kind of like incorporated the difficulty of that circumstance into his persona and comedy. So he's very open about it in ways that, I, you know, other people I think went through it too, but he was more, you know, he's, it's part of his whole shtick now. Um, so I loved talking to him and he would talk about this sort of like, 
existential angst of being on that um, lot for a year and having so little to do that he would just wander around and like go visit the set of Roseanne or like go out for pizza across the street and come back and be like, do you want anything from me now? No. Okay. I'm just going to go to see a movie. <laughs> like It's just because he couldn't figure out how to pitch them. And it, it does seem really difficult that, especially if you don't have that personal rapport with like Larry, which I'm sure is not easy. Um, you know, he's, he's a, he's a tough cookie. So, you know, having, getting, getting in there, getting his attention, pitching him, all of that, that alone just seemed incredibly difficult. And so, um, yeah, they would kind of come bring people in and they weren't really shy about it. They would bring in kind of like a group of writers for a year at their peak and usually, you know, um, stand up comedians who could just mine their own life for stuff for Jerry and others. And then they kind of like use up, most of us only have a few good stories. Um, you know, they like use up the stuff that had happened to them. And then for the most part, unless you were a Larry Charles or a Pete Melman, you were, you kind of knew you were likely to be shipped off the next year and you would, but it was the hottest credit to have in television. So like you said, also you'd end up with usually even Fred had like two, I think, um, credits. So it's like, you still have these scripts that Larry David has rewritten for you. Um, it looks great. And you were on the hottest show in television. I'm sure you could go get work elsewhere. And most of them did. And so, you know, it, it worked out okay. And those later, that, those later years, I will say, really produced a bumper crop. Whatever we think of the, that, those cartoonish years, it really is the part that produced the nice people rating. who went on to do just brilliant, brilliant work like Alec Berg and Mandel. Dave Mandel. Like, yeah, Mandel, yeah. They're just, you cannot deny, I mean, and that shows also the effect of Seinfeld on broader television right like though they made some of the most brilliant comedies of the last 20 years so yeah. you know yeah that's fair for sure it was a it was a springboard for others and i think the springboard for most was and we're talking to mark Kirschfeld uh in an upcoming episode i think and you talked to so many people internally in the show i think he was one of the probably one of the most important because what we found it's just the unselfishness of the main four characters to let these other guest stars just shine, right? Whether it's Jimmy or uh, Jack Klompas, you know, it's it's really incredible that you, you don't find that on any other show. That's a really, that's a good way of putting it that I don't know if I've put it that exact way before, but it's really true because I mean, they had plenty of material. It's just incredible how much they would pack in, right? Because they obviously <laughs> had plenty of material on their own that was incredible, but you're right. Almost every episode ends up with at least one pretty shiny guest star, right? Who really it's, and you know, beyond just, yes, there's like the Jerry girlfriends, but there's some of them are great in themselves. Sometimes they, they really got good plot lines, but also just these incredibly quirky. They were so good at making up these characters who could swoop in. And I mean, you know, it's a duh kind of thing, but the soup Nazi, I always cite just because people actually think he was in more than one episode in their memory because he's so memorable, but he was only in one. And this is a man who still, I haven't checked, you know, in the last five to 10 minutes, but basically up until fairly recently was still kind of making a living doing appearances as the soup Nazi. 
And this is, you know, he went on an audition one day in the 90s and ends up with this character who he's playing for the next 30 years. It's, it's sort of incredible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he had, you know, more or less like three lines, you know, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. The impact that the show had on, yeah, just like small characters like that. And, and that's why you love the show, right? I mean, of course, George Kramer and, you know, Kramer won Emmys along, but was probably the only one that won Emmy, right, on the, on the show. So um, it just goes to show the power of just the holistic team that they had. Yeah, I really think, I mean, they they were clearly quite gifted specifically at coming up with these characters, too, in a way you really don't see that often on other shows. I just don't think most other shows are good enough at it or were certainly weren't at the time at coming up with just this thing, you know, the, it's the lines, it's the characters, it's everything. Right. And they seem so big, but somehow they would give them just enough specificity and kind of like also get great actors to play them that you really could connect to them. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I read somewhere just talking about now the, the main four, I, I read somewhere where, you know, you had mentioned Elaine, you connect, you connected with, um, you know, um, we connected with George um, you know, but I mean, I think it's obvious, you know, the reasons there for, for both of us, I would think. Um, but I was curious cause I, I, um, I talk about in the podcast, I wrote my thesis on, on Seinfeld for my graduate, uh, program and I did like a character analysis and I talked about how, um, you know, Elaine and George are actually very similar, even though they are complete opposites, right? They're, they both want to be like well-respected and like, you know, George always pretends he's smarter than he is. Elaine always tries to think she's better than them. You know, in Bizarro Jerry, she had this, you know, other other friends who are smart. In the opera, she makes fun of Jerry and she calls George a loser to the rabbi. She always thinks she's, but then she always gets brought down to earth. Like Jake Jermel, she totally screwed that up, right? And the Bizarro people that I'm not liking her. Um, so the more she tries to get clout, she loses it. Whereas George just says like, screw everyone. I don't even, want, I, you know, I'm done with you guys. I don't know, I just, I love their, their sort of um, balance between the two because they're, they're, they're so similar and yet so opposite. Um, I don't know if there's a question here, really. I just wanted to get your thoughts sort of on like the, on the main four, just like, you know, George and, and Elaine and, and, you know, where yeah. you connected with Elaine, maybe where we connected with George. I think, I think there's something too. it just sort of clicked when you were saying that to me that like, I do think probably I, I can't prove this. Maybe we can prove it someday. Um, we can commission a survey of Americans and find this out. But um, I would guess that most people who watch Seinfeld identify with either George or Lane and not Jerry or Kramer. And I think, you know, they're, they're a grid in so many ways, like you're talking about. I think they're maybe, I don't know that they sat and plot the, plotted this out, but it clearly intuitively worked for them. And I think those are the two people who seem the most real. Um, and for the reasons you were talking about, they're sort of more vulnerable. You can see what it is that they're trying to do and you see them consistently brought down though. George, you know, at some point seems to almost get some momentum. Like the more he doesn't care, the more he rises in the world. Um, so there's something to be said for that, but I do think those two are the ones that like a lot of men that I meet, um, who love Seinfeld really, really identify with George and, you know, women tend to identify with Elaine. And I mean, Elaine to me is also, it's like, you can do, you can do a whole thesis just on Elaine and um, 
how she really is this sort of, I think, a forerunner of a lot of feminist characters who came after her. Um, I love, I have imaginary scenarios in my head where like she meets the women of sex in the city. I think they'd get along great. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think that might be her way out of finally not hanging around with these idiots anymore. That could be her bizarros is that she finds these women who are um, sort of equally terrible at times to how terrible she is, you know, like, I just think they, they would have a lot in common. Um, and, you know, kind of is a forerunner of a lot of these more liberated, more, um, flawed female characters who come after her. Yeah. I think I'd have to agree. Like people in our, I'd say age range, that is the case, but I, I'll never forget talking to my 90 year old grandmother from Ireland and she most associated with Kramer like just the quirkiness and (laughs) just how he can relate to anyone right like that was like I don't know she like bonded towards that so it's interesting but for me when I look at the the run of the show consistency of a character I think Jerry was the most consistent there was no you know we see a lot like Kramer gets a little very cartoonish George with a ha ha and then you know I always talk about Elaine, like her, her hair was kind of a a compass for the show as it got down, as the poof came down, like, and she became more, she became a different character as well. Um, You know, people love it. Some people don't, but um, so as from its character analysis, I just thought Jerry kind of was steady the whole time. I did think he improved as an actor. Um, I'm curious what some of the writers you talked to thought about the acting of each of the four clearly, you know, the other three were tremendous and, you know, uh, Jason obviously did Broadway, et cetera. But, um, but I don't know, for my money, like Jerry was probably the most consistent of the four over the run. What, what do you think? For sure. And I mean, he's doing like a version of the straight man, um, but not, it's so interesting in a way. It's like a different, it's like clearly the show is conceived. If you, if you looked at it from a network perspective, it sort of made sense. Like, oh, this is going to be the guy at the center. He's going to be the Kermit the Frog. He's going to be sort of the reasonable one. But obviously over time, this show goes completely off the rails in a good way. And they don't have to adhere to those sorts of types. They don't have to have a will they, won't they between Jerry and Elaine and he doesn't have to be the reasonable one. So he kind of just gets as dark as he wants to, but is very like, like you said, I mean, there's almost, there's like zero perceptible change and none of them really change like for the better, but he just like is, and it makes sense in a way, right? He is, he is him. He's right. playing a version of himself. So it's probably, it was, and he never leaves. So like Larry leaves. So Larry, yeah. that guiding force of George and he and Jason mentions that when Larry left, he his character kind of they, they didn't know how to write for him. The, the writing staff, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then they left him with you know. I think it was so fascinating and great in a way, but difficult. Like you know, like I said, he the last episode Larry writes is that death. Yeah. And then they've got to like come back after the summer and figure out a way to write a sitcom, which now that happens. You know, now right. we have whole sitcom. We have Dead to Me. We have. We have whole sitcoms that are about death and we have funny sitcoms that are very dark and we have dark shows like Succession that are very funny. Like we do that now, but people didn't do that then. So they had to kind of like figure out what to do with George. And it wasn't like, again, you know, you're the two final seasons of 
Seinfeld that many of us kind of quote complain about are like still some of the greatest television of all time, but it's just, it is, it was a different situation there and a little more, I think, unmoored from reality consistently than the previous several years, which occasionally got weird, but like often we're still had, had that feeling of that Larry had at the beginning where he really wanted the writers to pitch him stuff that had actually happened to them. And he wanted that as his starting point. It's clear later that some, that sometimes they just lose that completely. It's funny. You brought up the, uh, the death of Susan a couple of times. And I talk about this a lot, like, and I want to hear your perspective. Like, so I know you watched this live when you were younger and I'm assuming you probably rewatched every episode before the book. When I, when I rewatched over this last couple of years, um, I ranked the episode you're talking about in my bottom five. It just didn't sit well with me now as when I watch it live, it didn't, didn't bother me as much. I'm curious, are there any other, on that episode? What do you think? But also just overall, were there any episodes when you've, when you dug a little deep, you're like, a it like same as you watch it back then hilarious, whatever. Or there are other ones that were like, Hmm, that one didn't sit too well. That one is weird in the sense when you rewatch it in the sense of like, I mean, I hate being critical of any of these things, but like, it's like, maybe it's trying a little hard. Didn't you, did, is that what you're kind of feeling is like, maybe yeah. it was, it was like, look how dark I'm going to be, you know, like we're going to do this thing. Yeah. I mean, showing relief, you know, that's, that was the part that's a little interesting. It's like relief Where, yeah. is his first uh, reaction. Yeah. And then, and they don't have much time there. You know, it's it's only the last couple minutes of that episode that they can even really do that. And maybe it's better. Maybe it's better that then it's over and we go off for the summer and then they kind of, you know, do some stuff to recover from it, but don't really have to deal with like the next day for George, right. George you know. Um, I mean, I think it's it's funny. I think it's a funny concept in a Larry David way of like, what if you're relieved that you're, what if you're a little bit relieved that your fiance you didn't want to marry dies? <laughs> it's like a little funny. Um, I remember being pretty shocked at the time that that happened. Um, that's all I really remember. I don't remember like discussions late, like the next day or whatever, um, which is surprising. You would think, there would be more. I think maybe the finale ended up eclipsing it in my memory space more than anything else. But, um, you know, it was daring. And I will give them credit for that because it just was not done, this sort of thing at that time. Um, but yeah, it's it's like, I mean, even it's like we can talk about the finale, but I think about the finale yeah. this way, too, of like things that really change when you watch them in different contexts from the original like whether it's because we can stream it now and watch in order or because you know you just don't have the same stuff the same noise kind of sort of cultural noise surrounding certain episodes but i will say things like the the contest it's like they just play no matter what you know it's yeah. like the contest the marine biologist episodes like that i they just no matter what, they're perfect. And, you know, always enjoy when they come up. You always find new things when you watch them again. And it's just so much fun. Yeah. And I, wa I wanted to go back to something you touched on before uh, when you said uh, how a lot of us complain about the last two seasons. Now, I agree, uh, and, and my, my co-host here would too, that we do complain about the last two seasons. 
But what has shocked me about having this podcast is about how many people don't complain about the last two seasons. It's it's blowing my mind how how much the fans mm-hmm. of Seinfeld and our podcast are love the last two seasons when in fact we you know wasn't our taste right. So I'm curious if it's a if it's a generational thing because we watched it live maybe or we just have a soft spot for those episodes or if it's if it's I don't know if it's a type of sense of humor. But I know you know you're you are embedded in pop culture i mean you this is this is your your life so i'm wondering if 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 it's a bigger picture i'm missing as far as like what is what is the disconnect between those like what's i don't know i always think about it is it because when you watch it live in order mm-hmm. you're experiencing it like like as it's happening so every episode is like a groundbreaking uh, event like you mentioned earlier you go to school the next day everyone's talking about it right if you're watching reruns and you watch the eighth season on the Saturday you know, night, the next day you watch the Thursday, it's all discombobulated for you. And you're just looking at episode by episode and just being, you don't think of it as seasons. Maybe, I don't know. Again, I don't know if there's a question there, but I'm just curious. Cause when you said that, I'm like, yes, I agree with you, but I don't know if everyone's complaining about the last two seasons. Cause I'm seeing a lot of people like loving the last two seasons. Right. And there's still tons of it. Like you get, sure, it's like, funny, like, yeah. you know, um, soup Nazis in there among others, um, right. maybe sponge worthy, some other stuff. So like, you know, there's, there's definitely stuff that is still classic and great. Um, I always, for some reason, I always reach for Frogger as like my quintessential example of what happens in those last two seasons, because right. there's also weird stuff like Bizarro and the backwards and all of that. But that's, obviously they're starting, you know, that's when you're just starting to go like, I don't know, what if we went backwards, you know, like <laughs> right. they're clearly just grasping and they, that's not to say that's bad. It's just true. And I love the Bizarro episode in its way. Um, but you know, there's, it, there's just this different vibe and you're right. We might just be bringing a feeling. Cause I'll tell you what, what was really kind of funny and really stuck with me from research, which is something that a lot of people might not get this deep if you weren't writing a book about this subject is that, um, you know, I was going through a lot of the, the clips, it's newspaper clips from the time is the best you can do in terms of getting a read on things. And there's a real difference, first of all, between the earlier seasons when it's coming up, like TV coverage itself is different versus in the late, um, oh, right. Called era in the yeah, late, late that, yeah. 90s. Um, you actually get, I mean, I, I got, got into the internet of it all a little bit in the book, which I loved doing, but still the main way people were getting information was the newspaper, but it was changing from being kind of this like little bit, you know, a corner section of the arts section. Like some guy has a TV column and writes about TV once a week and might write about Seinfeld sometimes to this, like, much more, much closer to what we're, we are now used to on the internet, this sort of more intense coverage. And what I really remember is how in those final two seasons, there was so much talk about how much the show had changed and people were so obsessed with it that they would do these facts polls. Um, and I can't, I want to say the post, I'm not a hundred percent sure that's true. One of the big New York papers it def- and not the times um, was doing facts polls, you know, is is Seinfeld better or worse this season? Was it better this week than last week? All of this stuff that hadn't, you know, now we're so used to that feeling just on the internet. You, know, you can go on Twitter and find out what people think of the last week's succession, right. but you didn't have that feeling then. And then to see the way that, you know, 
the newspapers were really starting to hone in on this and like, is it worse than before is kind of always the feeling. It had this very sort of negative cast to it all the times. Like, doesn't it suck now? Um, so we may have picked up a little bit of that ourselves in, you know, in the ether and never quite dropped it. And so we kind of know, but I still do think there's a difference that might be a taste difference in terms of like, the subject matters that they would often cover. I do just feel like it it generally was lighter, goofier in those later seasons than that kind of more dark and real and I think philosophical interest that Larry brought to it. I mean, Agreed. I was just looking at the ratings. The, the Frogger did 30 million viewers in 98. Versus a dark episode like the Visa, right? With Cheryl, did eleven million. So, again, I don't look at ratings as a barometer, but to your point, you're a historian. I think, and we, you know, we'll say we are too. Like, we don't look at it as we look at it as a fan. Those episodes you mentioned, but like, we're analysts, right? We can be critical of these things. But so, I have a Seinfeld thing. I wrote these notes down from your book, and I can't remember what it says. You're going to help me out. So. The 100th episode party, I wrote blow up of changes that they ignored. Oh, yes. I think I do know what that is. Okay. (laughs) I knew it was important. They made a big poster of like all the different things that the network asked them to do. And they ignored. And obviously they survived and thrived without that. This was, I mean, not surprisingly and not exclusively to them. Um, But I think they really perfected the art of, you know, that, that kind of attitude of like, screw the network. Mm -hmm. Um, That was, you know, a lot of creatives had who were working in television, but they really took it to a new level. And what I think is so funny is like, there's probably a bunch of shows out there that also maybe, I mean, there might not be, but my guess is there's at least a few shows out there that ignored what the network had to say to them. And then were promptly pulled off the air and never right, seen that. Right, you know what I mean? Yeah, but like yeah, they yeah. just didn't get to make that big sign. They were so proud of this sort of macho attitude they had. And I do think it served them well, as we were talking about, I think it's why they made history, but you know, um, one of my favorite anecdotes from the book is when they were having when NBC wanted to have this like crossover night among all the must-see TV shows and this was like such a network thing to do where there would be a blackout and so and so many of their shows on the Thursday night they were all New York set shows so they think they're so clever and they're like, okay, well, we're going to have a blackout and like, it's going to go across all the shows. So it's, people are going to be so stoked because it's going to be like, as if, oh my God, mad about you really is in the same universe as like friends or whatever. Right. Um, my favorite side note of this is that they're the fourth show on at the time with like friends and mad about you and Seinfeld was a show called man of the people with like Dabney Coleman that lasted five minutes. Um, so they had the blackout too, but Seinfeld is at the top of their game and they were like, absolutely not. We, we do not do things like that. Um, it's a very, like, we do not join fraternities and sororities like the rest of you idiots. And so they didn't do it. But one of my favorite sort of anecdotes, I believe this is Pete Melman was that they had, they discussed like, wait, what if we did it, but we killed Ross from friends. 
<laughs> and then the network would just have to live with it. No, I'm sorry, we've murdered Ross, and now you need to live with the consistency of that that plot line. So she loved this idea so much. Um, so that's very indicative of their attitude toward playing nice with the network and with other shows. Like they very much distance themselves, especially from things like Friends. Yeah, this is the book again. There we go, Seinfeldia. Um, yeah, it's funny, and I, I we talked to the, some of the writers, especially uh, Matt Goldman, who was one of the original writers. And you know, I read somewhere too where you you, you compare Jerry and Larry to sort of uh, Lennon McCarthy type uh, type you know creative process. Um, and you know, talking to Goldman, he told the stories about you know they wouldn't let Larry in the room with the execs, so he would go in the room sometimes. <laughs> and uh, you know, hearing Jerry kind of tell them sort of what you said earlier that like I don't need this, like I'll walk. Like, I'm not going to do what you say. I'm going to do what I want to do. And if you don't like it, I'll just walk, like dealing with the execs. Um, and, and, you know, we did talk about Larry a bunch earlier. Um, I'm curious, from what I what I can gather, it seems like Larry was more of the creative, more of the, you know, his hands was on every single script. And, you know, he was, he was pretty much driving the show as a showrunner. And Jerry was more of the professional kind of steering the ship, making sure the execs, you know, were in the right places and, and kind of, handling that aspect of it. But um, I wanted to get your take on sort of Jerry's role in the whole thing, you know, especially after Larry left. I mean, he was also the star of the show. I mean, his name was on it. So, you know, we all give Larry the credit. Even Jerry does. I've seen him say, you know, Larry was the brains. But, you know, I'm curious what you gathered about Jerry's kind of, you know, role in this whole thing and how he was seen. Yeah, I mean, he was, I think in this this sense, I do sort of think of him as a little more of the Kermit the Frog behind the scenes. Um, you know what I mean by that? It's like the very the sort of center of things, the, you know, the sort of reasonable one. And I think even with stuff like dealing with the network, I think he would he would walk to and tell them to go screw themselves. But I have the sense that he could do it in this slightly more, you know, business like way, right, right. <laughs> you know, and and of course, he was the face and name of the show. So they probably also wanted to keep him happy. But I have the sense that he did a little more of the dealing with the executives and could put on that face when he needed to not groveling, but like at least, you know, not coming in guns blazing, you know? Um, So I do have that sense and that he, I mean, think of what he was doing by those last two years. I can't even fathom it to be honest, that he was starring in and being the head writer of this show and kind of shepherding all these pretty young writers who had come up at that point. I mean, they could, they were great. They knew what they were doing, but like, it's different from a show that's kind of like, if he had still had like a Larry Charles or something, he probably could have just thrown something to him and said, do it. But he still had to like, look at all the scripts, make sure everybody's playing nice. There were kind of factions by that time to deal with and all, all sorts of things like that. So I think, you know, he really was the, the center of this thing. And I mean, I do get the sense, I know it was sort of difficult at times for people like we were talking about pitching stuff and writing stuff but I've also heard really good things about him in general as a boss like once you were in Mm. like it seems like he took care of people you know he understood that everybody was working really hard it seems like most of the people at least at the center you know knew they were having the time of their lives knew to appreciate it and also were good like I mean Jason and Julia, like I've the, nothing but good thing. You know what I mean? Like just yeah, yeah. the bet, like really top notch people. I have talked to Julia and she is a top notch person. 
Um, she literally made me eat half of her sandwich once because she insisted I was hungry because I drove far. Like she's that she has mom energy. Like they're all really good people, which is funny when they're playing terrible people. But yeah, I think that he was good at balancing all this stuff. And I do think he and Larry balanced each other's, you know, sensibilities really nicely in this way that made it able to be a hit. I think Jerry's stuff is a little more accessible. And so that feeling of the accessibility came through and we can see what we know because of history that later we get unvarnished Larry David, we get uncut, like hundred percent pure Larry David from Curb Your Enthusiasm. And that's great for people who like that, but it's a lot. And I don't know if that would have worked on, I don't know if that would have been as popular on broadcast network television in the nineties. And I think the two of them balancing each other, it's sort of the joke of the finale even, isn't it? That like at the end, they're like, ha ha, you've been watching terrible people the whole time, but you didn't notice because it was really funny and accessible. Um, And I think that was Jerry's kind of spirit that made it that way. Yeah. I mean, like you said in the book, Rick Ludman, funny is funny, right? Like you, you can't really fool people, like, especially for nine years, it's really difficult. Right. So I do want to hear about some of your favorite episodes, but one of our favorites, and you mentioned the book, I just want to know if there's a connection there, is The Fire. So in The Fire, Leonard Christian from W, right, is there, and, you know, he writes that Jerry's a deer in headlights. You reference an L.A. Times writer, Lawrence Christian, I believe, in the book, that ripped Jerry's stand-up in 1989 and, you know, NBC was so scared that, you know, this might have a ripple effect and the show might not happen. Is that a coincidence or are those two names connected? That's a great question. I actually don't know the answer fully, but I would very, I'd be very surprised if they're not. (laughs) Just because of everything else we know about their naming propensities. Um, You know, a, a good real name never escaped these guys to this day. When I hear certain names, I mean, just in the wild. Sometimes yeah. I'll hear a name. Fun, fun side fact that is related actually is like, so I, I looked at Rick Ludwin's documents in his archive when I was doing this research and they were super helpful, but I saw Jeremiah Bosgang's name on a bunch of them. And I just thought like, that's a name. I was like, I've, I'm surprised they didn't pick that name off in music. Cause it just, you can sort of hear it rolling off of Larry's tongue, you know? <laughs> and I, it's actually part of why I contacted Jeremiah Bosgang and he turned out to be this great source for me was because I just for like his name caught my eye. Cause I thought like, Oh, I'm so surprised they didn't use it because of like classics, like Joe Devola, right? Like that right. we know were real people's names. And I talk about this in the book cause it's a weird obsession of mine. Um, Cause I just think it's weird if you end up with a character, especially like Joe Devola, who's just this legendary psychopath and you've let this man take your name and use it for that. I just think it's so fascinating. So I really, really think there are a few coincidences when it comes to names and these guys. Yeah. It's, it's always fascinating. Becky Gelke and Alec Berg. Um, <laughs> they just, and you understand intuitively, even though you can't totally explain it away. You're yeah. Just like, yeah, you're right. I see it. it. That is just a funny name. And you yeah. can sort of, Oh, I can always picture Larry saying it out loud and going, you know, like Joe Devola. <laughs> like you can just sort of imagine why he likes that and why he likes saying it and why he steals certain names. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's the show is obviously timeless and ageless, and now it's on Netflix, and it's been thirty years since a lot of these episodes aired. Um, and, and yeah, I know I know that you you were a fan of the finale. Um, as were as was we, I can say we. I'm pretty sure how I liked it too. I mean, I definitely didn't hate it. Um, but as someone who's actually you know you you've you've written about and and studied so many TV shows, I've I'm kind of a TV nut myself, obviously, and. I've noticed that a lot of times finales in general don't get good reception. And I, I have this theory. It's because it's the finale, especially for big shows. So everyone tunes into it. So most people tuning into it have not been watching the show the entire run and are not fans of the show. Most they're just like, Oh, the finale is on. Let me watch it. Right. And they're like, Oh, that sucked. Well, yeah, of course it sucked. If it was the first episode you ever saw of Seinfeld. Right. But imagine it, like, yeah, I like, love yeah like how is that? Like, to, like narrate their thoughts while watching. Yeah. It's like if you've been watching the whole time, it wrapped. What's a finale going to do? It's going to wrap the whole thing up. I thought it wrapped it up pretty well in a way that that show would wrap it up. You know, I didn't hate it. I thought it was pretty good. Um, I was, you know, the question was more around others, like just in TV in general. Like, what is that about finales? It's interesting. Like, you know, what what finales were received well? Like, I can't even think of one. You know, like what? It's it's interesting. Really, really hard. Um, You know, uh, pilots and finales are just notoriously hard for obvious reasons. Anybody who's ever tried to write anything starting and finishing are so hard. And I actually think finishing is harder. Um, like, right. Have we all been sitting there yeah. like click, click, click. And you're like, Oh, how do I get out of this? Um, the end and there's no more. Um, and I think a lot about like how, what could they have done to please everyone? It's so hard to imagine. Um, but you know, I mean like the one that comes to mind and of course I wrote a book about it, so it helps, but like, the Mary Tyler Moore show nailed it. Um, and I think they nailed it in the moment too. I think everybody loved it in the moment and it is really, really good. Um, it's a classic finale and really it's a different kind of show though. So like it was a feelings show. And so they could draw on that. I think shows that have feelings are easier to wrap up. And in the case of the Mary Tyler Moore show, they just had extremely skilled writers who were able to balance feelings with not being cheesy. And I would be tempted if I were ending friends to just do what they did and be like, here's what everybody wants. See you folks. Whereas, you know, you're Larry David and you have a finale of Seinfeld, which is a show notoriously, you know, no hugging, no learning. How can you wrap something up without a hug or a learn? at some point, it's really, really, really (laughs) hard. And so all he could do in like, the reason that I really like it is yes, of course, there's that feeling of just like, you get to see all those secondary characters we talked about, right? Part of it is just a tribute to that. Right. Yeah. Where we started was kind of like, how could we bring them all back? And yeah, it's a little bit of a contorted way of doing it. And it took them out of their normal sets, which nobody liked. Um, and then it put them on trial and told us they were actually horrible people, which a lot of people didn't like. Um, I enjoyed what I saw as a pretty deep and maybe dark philosophical bent to the entire thing. <laughs> like, there's a little bit of Sartre in there that maybe not even just a little bit, right? There's there's a lot of no exit kind of quality, and I dug that. Like I loved mm. that it least tried. And that's a time when people were not necessarily swinging for the fences with their finales. So I, I don't think it was perfect. And I don't think it is as good as something like the Mary Tyler Moore show or the Bob Newhart show or, you know, those kind of Newhart, I should say, not the Bob mm. Newhart show. 
Um, you know, there are some mash famously was great. You know, there are some kind of old school ones. And then, you know, I, it's kind of funny to think about it in current terms too, and how like, it feels as if every other week there's some giant finale that everybody's freaking out about and that everyone hates. Um, like you said, like Game of Thrones didn't nail it. Um, you know, so it's like, it is notoriously difficult. And I think they really had a very hard assignment here. Like I like to ask people, what would you have wanted if not this? And nobody has ever given me a good answer. Well, listen, everyone's a tough guy on Twitter. And if people that didn't like that, go tell them to watch the Frogger and then they'll say, okay, we get it. So Jennifer, so speaking of, of Netflix and I, I don't know, my thoughts on this are, I don't know how well Seinfeld's going to do on Netflix. And let me tell you, like, like the office and friends did good. And you just mentioned it, right. They wrapped it up. Jim and Pam, Ross and Rachel, like, like for me, I'm not going to go to Netflix and watch it. I love when I'm cruising through the channels and then boom, I see uh, the cafe and Babu's on. I'll just flip to it. Like, I think that, I don't, I could be wrong, but I think that's the Seinfeld consumer and user. I don't think they're going to go back and binge because there is no love story. There's no like pretty bow that's going to grip someone. I I could be wrong. and And I don't know if you've heard any like initial like ratings or anything from, from Netflix, but I'm curious your thoughts. I know they spent a lot of money on it, but do you think it's going to be huge or if it's more of a, a syndication play? It's a great question. And I, I don't know, but I kind of, I think there could be a number of factors that I agree with you on there. Um, I even think that like Seinfeld was kind of built to specifically thrive in this, the um, syndication era. And one of the big like ways I thought about approaching that book that I was writing was just like, honestly, what I, I knew I had read, you know, Jerry saying somewhere, the big story of Seinfeld is syndication. That's where it became legendary. And I was like, how do you quantify syndication? How do you write about that in a book? How do you put it in a narrative? Yeah. And that's why I did a lot of the like stuff about like the, the names and the people who became famous, like the soup Nazi and like the fan stuff, because to me, that's, an indicator of what happened in syndication. And I think part of it is that people did enjoy that like sort of slot machine vibe of just like turning on TBS people. So many people told me over and over again, like I can't go to sleep without watching Seinfeld on TBS at night. And it is, it was while they were, would often be kind of in order. That wasn't the point. The point was that they didn't have to be because it isn't, you know, Ross and Rachel, it isn't, an ongoing storyline that we need to follow and things like friends and even the office, like you said, um, have these ongoing things, but also like, I think this is related. I found that Seinfeld had a really hard time in translation, you know, overseas because it was literally difficult to translate. Um, like it was because it's, it's such word-based humor and it's also really cultural humor. And so the, I actually talked to people who had worked on translating it in other countries and they said, they talked to me about how hard it was. Um, Cause you know, you have a joke like Mulva or something. That's just one example that she gave me is like that whole joke is about how a woman's body part name rhymes with various female names. Well, you got to work from scratch in your own language on that one. Oh, man. So just something like that. And that's one tiny thing. So 
I wonder if it's, and Friends, for instance, is a blockbuster all over the world. And I always felt like that's just visually even easier to translate. It's like beautiful people falling in love in New York City. That's all you need to know. <laughs> and that's not what Seinfeld's doing at all. So I just wonder if some of those factors could come together. I would love, though, to see it have any fraction of the success that like Friends especially had with picking up younger generations because it's on Netflix. I mean, they were all watching Grey's Anatomy. I think they should definitely watch Seinfeld. I hope they pick it up because I, 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 think, I hope for the future of our country. Right? <laughs> I, I think that they would really like, it's obviously a different thing, but I really feel like there's still something to be, you know, enjoyed there. And there's so much about like, like I said, every comedy that comes after it is a reaction to Seinfeld. And in many other ways, it, it actually fits really well into the current landscape. I just wrote a whole story about how dark and sad at times, but not so much the sad, but the dark, how dark comedy has gotten in the last 20 years on um, streaming services. Mm-hmm. And I think it, you know, think about, I have succession on the brain. Clearly I've mentioned it several times right, today. Right. Like, Think about, I like to think about something like Seinfeld and Succession, you know, juxtaposed. They're not that far. <laughs> no one even knows what Succession is. Like it won an Emmy for drama. And yet that makes no sense because it's kind of not. Yeah. Um, it's very, very, very funny. So it's just interesting to think about Seinfeld in the context of that or even a Veep or a Barry, which both were, you know, created by guys who came from Seinfeld. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Right. Well said. Well, listen, you mentioned we hope Seinfeld gets picked up, but let's hope everybody picks up your big book, Seinfeldia, because it's a great read. And man, you're you're a better conversation than the book. I'll tell yeah. you that. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Jennifer. This was awesome. We uh <laughs> we appreciate it. And um man, we could talk to you talk about Seinfeld with you all day. So <laughs> much for the time we'll do more some other time maybe thank we'll, you, we'll, we'll watch it on netflix and talk some more <laughs> <laughs> thank you thanks so have much a, have a great night thank, thank you you, you too fun